Welcome to First Importance, the official podcast of the preaching and teaching ministries of First Baptist Church, West Memphis, Arkansas. Our prayer is that you will be blessed and encouraged today by this message. If you have your Bibles, you know where to join me. The Gospel of John in chapter 17. Only 10 more messages left in this Gospel as we continue to look at this theme of believing and of living. Uh, as you make your way there to John chapter 17, we'll be looking at verses 20 through 26 today. This uh, past week, our church, along with several people from our community, did a prayer walk at the Marion Public Schools on the quad, that big, long oval. We did a, big, a, a long walk along there and, and, and prayed together and prayed over the schools. And I was excited about being at West Memphis the week before and then at Marion this past week. And as we, as we gathered together to begin this time of prayer, uh, I, I gathered everyone together right after 6 p.m. And I said, hey, Today, we're, we're gathering to pray. Here's how it's going to go. I'm going to pray for us right now. And then once I'm done praying, we are going to walk around uh, this large oval. We're going we're gonna to pray over the Marion School District and over our schools and teachers and students. We're going to pray for them. And I'm going to ask you to do me this one huge favor. Please, please, I made a big emphasis of it, please, this is not a time of fellowship, uh, of talking, and of laughter. I'm glad we get along. We're going to do that later. But this time is a time of reverence and of prayer, of reverence and of prayer. And then I prayed, and then in the prayer I made sure to say once again, Lord, help this time to be a time of reverence and prayer. And so I said amen, and we began to walk around that very long road. And Sarah, being very, very wise, had made sure that my little four-year-old girl, Belle, had brought a scooter so that she could keep up with us. And so as we're beginning the walk, uh, it's uh, me, and then Bo is on this side, my seven-year-old, and then my wife, and then Belle, our little four-year-old girl, is scooting. And we're all walking, and she's scooting next to us. And I notice that she keeps getting a little bit further away, and a little bit further away. So Sarah and I began to look at one another as if, what do we do in this situation? We, are, uh, we have said this is a time of reverence. It would be very difficult to say, hey, get back here. <laughs> so we're trying to, uh, we're, you know, how do, we, how do we get her back? And she's getting a little bit further away. And then finally, she comes to a stop. And I think, oh, good, we're not going to have to do it. And she holds on to her scooter. She's got one foot on the scooter, one foot off. And she looks back at us and she says, see you later, alligators. And it takes off. <laughs> My own daughter. Going against what I had prayed for, against the very thing. It was precious. Oh, my goodness. It was precious or precocious. I don't know. One of those words. But at the same time, it was one of those times where I just, oh, Lord, help me. Be with these students and with my children. My own daughter publicly moving against the grain of my own prayer. But then again, I think that many of you probably know what that feels like. For years, you have prayed for a family member who has been wandering from the Lord 
or has not been serving the Lord, and you've prayed for them and prayed for them that they would give their life to Jesus or that they would stay true to the roots of what you had taught them by being faithful in the church, and you pray and you pray, and it seems as if, it seems as if they're doing everything against the way that you're praying for them. Now, you know, there are a variety of angles through which we can view our passage today. But I want us to view our passage, and looking at the truth of this prayer of Jesus, I want us to see it together today as something, as a prayer, that we as his children are to live in. And it's something we are to live on top of and for. It's not something, it's not a prayer that we are to live against. That's the angle that we're looking at today. We're going to look at the truth of the word, but in the back of your minds and in your hearts, I want you to be asking yourself, I want the Holy Spirit to be asking you, are you living in this prayer? Or are you living outside of it? And so to title this message, I borrow the words of the little-known theologian from the 1980s, Bon Jovi, when I say our title is Living on a Prayer. Some of you are already singing the song in your head. Living on a Prayer, and it's my prayer today that these words are something that we find ourselves living in and not working against. Look with me in verse 20. Hear now the word of the Lord. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Would you pray with me please? Father in heaven, I beg you for the anointing touch of your Holy Spirit right now. You know Lord, that I am unable to enunciate the glorious truths found just in our passage today from your word. You know my inabilities, my weaknesses. And so, Father, I pray that you would speak to your people today that the lost who are within the sound of my voice would be under the conviction of your spirit and would give their lives to Jesus and that those who are, whose lives are already belong to you I pray that they'd be drawn closer to you. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. This final prayer, this high priestly prayer of Jesus comes to its conclusion today. And the overarching theme of our text today and the overarching theme of this prayer is a theme of unity. 
Jesus prays that his family, that those who belong to him might be united and might stay united, that they would get along and that they would be of one mind and of one spirit. The overarching theme is that of unity. Now, I want to be very careful before we dive into our text today to make sure that we understand uh, the right words, that we're using the correct terminology. The word that I'm using today is unity, and I fear that when I say the word unity, you hear the word uniformity. That is not the word that Jesus uses today, and it's not the thought that Jesus uses today. Unity means that we be of the same mind and of the same spirit, that we move together, even though we may be diverse from different backgrounds, with different, uh, with, with different backgrounds, different cultures, and all of those things. He is not speaking of uniformity, meaning that we all look exactly alike. That would make for a terrible church. Can you imagine a church, this church, filled with Joshes? That would be a terrible church. Thank you for not saying amen. <laughs> I had a tagline for a few of you that I thought might say amen. I don't have to use that, so thank you so much. It would be terrible. God has brought us all together from different backgrounds, from different colors and cultures, and he has united us. The point here is not uniformity, that we would all look alike, but unity, that we would all be moving in the same direction, that we'd all be on the same page, that we would be of one unit. That's Christ's prayer for his church for you today that we would be united together. And his prayer really, uh, here at the conclusion, I, I see him asking for this unity right now in the present on this earth. And then I see him asking for unity forever in that place where there are no more tears or death or pain. Let's look first in verses 20 through 23, and I want you to see that Jesus is praying that we would be united now, that we would be united now. Look with me in verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Jesus is asking that we would be united now. Now, I want you to see in verse 20 that not only is he asking that we be united now, but he is giving us a basis, a foundation on which we are to build our unity. As he is praying, he's praying precisely every word is correct and every word pleases the Father and is complete profound, utter truth, when he prays for us that we be united, he teaches us that we have a foundation that is sure. It's a foundation that we are united out of this world. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me. Jesus is asking for unity in his church, amongst his people. He has been emphatic throughout this prayer to say that he is not at this point in time, he is not in this prayer praying for the world. He is praying for his church, not for the world. This is not Jesus's kumbaya moment. 
where he is saying, I'm just praying that all of the world would be united and on the same page. Jesus understood all, I mean, more clearly than we could ever understand that there cannot be true unity between God and the world absent the gospel of Jesus Christ. There cannot exist unity between the world and the church. Jesus is not praying for unity between the world and the church. He has said already in John chapter 17 that we are in the world, but not of the world. In James chapter 4 in verse 4, we are commanded as a church not to be friends with the world, the worldly system. We can befriend people in the world and love people in the world, but we are not to have friendship with the world, for friendship with the world is enmity with God. In 1 John chapter 2 in verses 15 through 17, we are taught not to love the world. That is not that we should not love the people of the world. Jesus loved the people of the world. He came into this earth and lived a perfect life and died to show his love for the world. But we are commanded in, John, in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, that we cannot love the world or the things of this world because that love is not compatible with the things of God. It's coming to an end. We are commanded in 2 Corinthians in chapter 6 not to be unequally yoked. Why? Why? Because we cannot be united with the world. Our mission is to go out and to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ so that they may be united with him. And then after they have been united with him as we have, then there can be unity amongst us. There cannot be unity with the church and the world. The world will never again see us as something as virtuous but only as something that gets in the way we as the church, Jesus is praying for us that we as a church would be united on the same page, not us in the outside world, but our church, our family. I see us as a family, our church as a family. And we have our share of differences in our family, but when it comes down to it, we're still family. God has united us together, and he is asking for his church. He's asking the Father that his church, for those who will believe in me, that they would be one. And then, not only is the foundation that we would be uh, united outside of the world, but together, but it's a foundation that is united on the word. Notice with me in verse 20, he asks, not only for those who will believe not only for those, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. It is a unity based in the gospel that is rooted in the word of God. What is our basis for unity? Is our basis for unity shared preferences? Is it shared color skin, shared language, shared culture? No, that is not our basis for unity. It has become a practice in the Southern Baptist world, especially within the last decade and even more, to establish or to plant churches that are based upon one particular hobby group. And I'm going to exaggerate for the purpose of not calling out one particularly, but it's almost as if we've said, hey, we're going to start the first 
Pizza Baptist Church. And this church is for everyone who loves pizza. Now, we're going to make it more specific. This is just for the pepperoni folks. The cheese folks are going to go over there and start their own church. And, and we started up these churches. And man, I'm going to tell you something. These churches have done a good job in evangelism. But you miss the point when you fail to see that our unity in the gospel is not based upon our preferences, but is based upon the holy, infallible, inerrant word of God. That's what makes Christianity so sweet. That's why in the beginning of, of Christianity, in the beginning, uh, as the church was being formed, they began to call one another brothers and sisters. In the midst of the most, one of the most racist times of human history, Greeks were looking at Jews and saying, you're my brother. You're my, you're my sister. It doesn't matter the differences that we've had in our culture. It doesn't matter the differences in our language. What matters is that we have been united in Jesus and we claim his word. We're not based upon unity and preference. Not the style of music. Not the, not the, way, that we conduct, not the way that we have music, whether it be piano or guitar hymns or whether it, I mean, whatever it may be, that's not what unites us together. What unites us together is the gospel that we have from his holy, infallible, inerrant word. The foundation of our unity is God's holy word. That's why we cannot have fellowship with those who do not believe that this is God's holy, infallible, inerrant word. There can't be unity there. We cannot have fellowship with genuine unity and fellowship with those who do not believe this because this is our basis for it. This is where we learn of the gospel. Jesus is praying and he's giving us a firm foundation that we are united outside of the world and that we are united on top of the word through their word. Jesus has done it over and over again. He's put a stamp of approval on the writings of the New Testament. Their word will be the basis for the unity that we can find in the gospel. Christ's prayer for our unity is not at the sacrifice of truth, but it's on the basis of it. So a lot of people would say, hey, you know how we could have real unity? We can throw off doctrine. We can throw off uh, some of these smaller issues to which we say, no, the basis for true unity is God's word as he meant it, not as we would like for it to, to be meant. Not as we would like to perceive it, but God's word is our firm foundation. All the other places that, that you know, forfeit doctrine for that, they will have a unity that is shallow, that may look like a rock, but is actually sandy ground. If we are to build our unity that Christ has prayed for, for the church, it must be on God's word without sacrifice without giving in or without, uh, without tossing it off to the side. We, are, have, we have a united foundation, but we also see in verse 20 that we, or in verse 21, that we have been united with him. 
Jesus says, I do not ask these only, but also for those who will believe in me. That's us. That's you. That's me. He's praying specifically for us here today. He's praying that for those of us who have heard their word, verse 21, that they may all be one. He's praying that we would be one together. That we would count the glory of Jesus, the mission that he has set us on as more important than any of our preferences and any of our desires. That, that as we set our eyes upon Jesus, we gladly forfeit these minor things that seem like priorities to us but aren't priorities in the word. He is praying that we would be one of one unit together. He, and he, he prays for not just any type of unity. He says that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. The unity that Christ prays for in us is not a superficial unity. The prayer that he prays for for us doesn't imitate the relationship of he and the Father and the Spirit and him. It doesn't imitate or mirror the fellowship of the Trinity, but it is the exact same. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, that we be united with him. This is the prayer of Jesus. So again, remember, in the back of your mind, you're to be asking I'm hoping, I'm praying the Holy Spirit is prompting on your heart. Am I living in this prayer? Jesus says, I'm praying that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. We're united in mission. He continues in verse 21, that they may all be one, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. Our God-given unity is a testimony to the entire world. Jesus has already said that all those who belong to him will love one another and that the world will know that we belong to him by our love for one another. Here he is saying that our unity will be a great witness to the community of our relationship with him. The greatest evangelistic tool that the church has at its disposal is not go nights or door-to-door -door ministries, although they all have their place. The greatest evangelistic tool at our disposal is that we be one that we be a unified church, that when our hearts pump, they pump for Jesus, that when, our, that when we move throughout our day, that our, our thought and our hearts are on what he desires and not what we want or what we desire. We are united in mission so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Verse 23, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Notice what he's saying here. We're united in mission. We're united in him. Do you see how wonderful that is? He is saying that same glorious, wonderful, uninterrupted fellowship that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have had together before time in eternity past, that same fellowship that has existed in their holiness, God has now invited us in to be a part of. Think about that. 
Do you deserve that? Maybe you think that you deserve that. But the more I realize what kind of sinner Josh Hall is, the more I realize it is beyond my comprehension why sometime in eternity past, the father said, you know this relationship that we're enjoying, I want Josh to be a part of it. You know this uninterrupted peace, this uncalculable joy that we're experiencing I want Sandy to be a part of it. I want Mike to be a part of it. I want to invite them into it and for them to enjoy that salvation isn't just about heaven, which is to come, but it's about this sweet fellowship that God has invited us in upon. Think about about the greatest relationship you've had on this earth. Maybe the greatest relationship that you've had on this earth is with your spouse or perhaps with a friend or a parent. Think of the greatest relationship. Now think about the greatest moment in that relationship. And even then, there were differences between the two of you. There were conflicts that were ready to be started. You weren't exactly on the same page all the time. But the Bible says we've been invited to this perfect, everlasting relationship that God has invited us into. See, that's why we proclaim the gospel. Not so that people can come to church and be good citizens, be moral people. But we go because we say, hey, even though you've deserved everything, even though I've deserved everything to merit God's condemnation and hell forever, he has offered a relationship with him that will never end, that is without interruption that promises true joy, unity, peace. He has invited us in to that relationship for reasons beyond our comprehension. The holy has invited the unholy. He has made us holy so that we could partake in that relationship. We are united here and now. That's the prayer of Jesus that his church be united. And so the question again is, am I living in that prayer or am I living outside of that prayer? Now, how do you live outside of that prayer? Now, this is not aimed at anyone in here. I'm so thankful for the unity that we have in our church. But do you know how you disrupt unity? You gossip. That's how you disrupt unity. You know how you disrupt unity? You want your way above everybody else's way. That's not what Scripture teaches us to be as believers. We're to be humble. We're to be filled with humility and to long for this unity. Are you living in this unity? We have been prayed for that we would have unity right now. But secondly, I want you to see with me that Jesus has prayed that we would be united forever. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me with me where I am. You know, in a sense, every time a believer dies, the prayer of Jesus, enunciated here in verse 24, is answered. To be absent from the body as a believer is to be present with the Lord. And Jesus has prayed that his followers, that his children, that his people 
would be brought to him. Not only would they experience the unity right now, but that one day at the right time, that all those whom the Father has given him would be with Jesus where he is. It's the prayer of Jesus that we would join him in heaven, in that place. Now, there, there's a lot of questions of what heaven may be like. And if you go to any given funeral, you may find a creative and vivid imagination of what the what our human minds might envision heaven to be like and what might be there. I was told at a youth camp uh, many, many years ago when I was a student that they were sure that there were going to be Swiss cake little Debbie rolls in uh, heaven. I don't know. I took it as gospel because the person who said it. So I just figured that they must have read that from some place in the scripture. We have great imaginations of what heaven may be like. But on the instances in Scripture where the veil is pulled back for just a moment and we gaze into heaven, we see a much more glorious picture than what we can possibly imagine. In Revelation chapter 21 and verses 1 through 4, as the curtain is pulled back for just a moment for us to look into heaven, John looks in and he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. When Jesus asks that we might join him in heaven. When he asks of the Father, this is the scene, that we might be with him in that place where we no longer have to deal with the obituaries anymore. And we no longer have to deal with the pain of a lost loved one. And we no longer have to hurt because of a broken relationship. And we won't cry anymore. And there won't be pain anymore. There won't be difficulties in your body anymore. He's praying, Lord, let, Father, let them come and be with me in that place. Let me tell you one more, where sin will be no more. Aren't you tired of it? My brothers and sisters, you know, I was evaluating my own life. I have followed Jesus, or I've claimed to follow Jesus now for over two decades of my life. Over, excuse me, three, is that possible? Many years. As I look at my life, I say, wow, you think that you would have been better at this by now. Name, name it. I mean, don't do it here. But you can name what you think that I would have been better at this by now. But I find that the battle with sin intensifies even as you continue to walk with him. It doesn't always get easier. There's coming a day when we will be in that place with him and sin will be no more. We will be in his presence. He says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. Verse 24 of the Gospel of John in chapter 17. Father, that they may be with me where I am to see my glory. 
that you have given me because you have loved me from the foundation of the world. What does heaven look like? What's there that catches the eye? Jesus. Jesus. Now, perhaps in your mind's eye, that is not enough to make heaven the place that it is. Now, I'm thankful. I'm thankful, I believe, from Scripture that we're, when we get to heaven, that there will be a great reunion. We'll be able to see those of our family members and loved ones who've gone on before us, who fought the good fight, who stood in the faith, and who passed on before us. I'm thankful for that reunion that awaits us, but all of that pales into, in comparison as to who is sitting on the throne there. Jesus is there. He will be our king. We will be his people. We will be amongst him. We will see his glory. Right now, we only see it kind of faded. We see it through the scripture as best as we can, but there's coming a day where we will see him face to face. The one who loved us with an everlasting love. The one who said, in order to bring them into this sweet fellowship, I will go to earth and be amongst the wicked and the sinful, and I will do nothing but good deeds is all that I can do, and I will die on the cross and take their sin upon me. Even though I've known no sin, I will come to no sin by laying their sin upon my shoulders. I will die for them on the cross, trusting all of it to you, Father, and then I'll be taken down from that cross and laid in a borrowed tomb. But on the third day, he rose again, offering salvation to you and me if we will just turn from our sins and turn to him. I don't know about you, but that's enough to say, Lord, where you are, that's where I want to be. I'm going to keep working in this world because for some reason you still got me here. For some reason you still want me here. For some reason you're still going to use me, but I'm looking forward to that day. A professor at Mid-America Seminary would often tell us in Paul's calendar there were only ever two days. There were this day and there's that day. And for Paul, he commands us, the Holy Spirit commands us through his writing that we're to live every this day in light of that day. There's coming a day where we will be in his presence. Revelation 22 verses 3 through 4 says that as we view him face to face, there will no longer be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. And they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Jesus is praying not only that we be united now, but that we be united forever, or maybe I could even say reunited in that place where he reigns and will be in his perfect presence forever and ever. Now look with me in verse 25 through the end of the chapter. We'll close it very quickly. O righteous Father, Jesus says, even though the world does not know you, and these know that you have sent me, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Now, part of Jesus' prayer 
is a promise to the believer. If you've repented of your sins and called upon Jesus, uh, his Holy Spirit is our teacher. He illuminates the truth of his word into our life so that we might see Jesus as more lovely each and every day. But Jesus is here saying, I have not only made your name known to them, but I am going to continue to do so. I'm going to continue to pull back the curtain a little bit more so they might see more of you and fall more in love with you and be drawn closer to you for this purpose, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them. How are you and I loved? And Jesus' final prayer, he says, you and I are loved no less by God than the love that he has for his son. He loves you like no one else can. He loves you with a capacity, with a power that no one else can provide. His love is eternal. And so as we look at the final prayer of Jesus, that we might be united here on earth, that we might be reunited in heaven, I want to encourage you to be people who are living in that prayer who are living it out, who are living in his word. Thank you for listening to First Importance. It is our prayer that you have been blessed by this podcast. We welcome you to join us in person for worship at First Baptist West Memphis on Sundays at 1045 a.m., where our desire is to love God, care for one another, and share the gospel.